0: This podcast is not intended as a substitute for proper diagnosis and medical care by a qualified veterinarian. Furthermore, the views expressed in this podcast are those of our hospital only and are not intended to represent the policies and practices of other animal hospitals. Before we get to today's episode, I'm popping in to say that at the time we recorded this interview, we were still practicing physical distancing because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Recording remotely, while advantageous at a time such as this, presents some technical difficulties, including audio artifacts, which you may notice during this episode. We don't feel that it detracts from the quality of information presented in the interview, however, and we ask for your understanding. And now, on to the episode.
1: Welcome to the Animal Hospital of North Asheville podcast. I'm your host, Gretchen Harwell, and joining me again today is Dr. Loveless. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Loveless.
2: Thank you, Gretchen.
1: And today, we're actually gonna talk about what is kind of the counterpart to last month's topic, which was Addison's disease. Today, we're gonna to talk about Cushing's disease. And so, just like we always do, let's start the definition, what is Cushing's disease?
2: Great. Um, so Cushing's disease is also known as hyperadrenocorticism, um, which is basically, like we talked about, an over-hyper, I mean over, kind of overactive, um, and basically adrenal gland. So we're talking about the adrenal gland again, and this last time we had, with Addison's disease, the adrenal gland's not working. And this time with Cushing's disease, the adrenal gland's working too much, and it's producing too much of its hormones. Um, the biggest one being cortisol,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, which is basically the body's equivalent of prednisone. Uh, which most people are probably more familiar with prednisone is a steroid. So it's basically you get um, a lot of things similar to if you were to take a bunch of um, steroids, which is also one of the causes is if you take too much steroids, you will get a version of Cushing's disease as well. So,
1: Okay. And um, can cats and dogs both get Cushing's disease?
2: Um, similar to Addison's disease. Yes. Um, Dogs are most of the cases we diagnose, but cats can get it. Um, there's a little bit difference in cats, which we can talk about later. we we'll talk about signs and symptoms, but mm-hmm. um, for the most part, um, cats are a pretty rare thing to get. Um, they can get it, but it's, it's uh, a little bit more rare um, right. in cats than dogs as far as what we see.
0: Okay.
1: And now when a pet has Cushing's disease, it is, is it always the same or are there kind of different versions of Cushing's disease that we can talk about?
2: Yeah, so the um, so there are two different versions that we, we tend to think. One is a pituitary-dependent Cushing's disease, where in this case, um, there's a something wrong with the pituitary gland, which is located kind of right in the middle, middle of your skull, in the middle of the, kind of middle of the brain, um, mm-hmm. and it basically controls a lot of hormone. Um, it controls your thyroid, um, your cortisol, things like that, and it basically um, sends out little molecules, all over um, stimulation molecules to tell it, to tell your um, system whether to um, produce more of a hormone or less of a hormone and things like that. It's kind of got its own little feedback loop. Um, and, and pituitary dependent, that feedback loop, there's a tumor usually on, on that pituitary um, gland, and it's usually a very small tumor. In most cases, it's not a what we call a, a malignant tumor. It's a, usually a benign tumor, but it's just in a spot that's going to um, create a lot of disruption in the body's normal systems. And the other one is when there's a a tumor directly on the adrenal gland, Um, either one or both of the adrenal glands. Usually it's just one. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen a case where two adrenal glands have had uh, tumors at the same time. Usually it's one adrenal gland has a tumor. And both cases, they produce a lot of uh, excess cortisol like we talked about.
1: Right. Okay. And just as a refresher, where are the adrenal glands located?
2: Right. The adrenal glands... um, are located usually right up above the kidneys or, in a dog's case, right forward, forward of the kidneys. Uh, if you're a human, you stand upright, so they're kind of on top of the kidneys. And dogs, they are more horizontal, so it's kind of in front of the kidneys towards the head. Of, and they're just used on either side of the uh, – each kidney has one associated with it, and they're usually really close to the vena cava, so they have a good blood supply. Um, mm-hmm. so They can get – release their hormones into the, into the body quickly and uh, get a good – a response from this
0: right
1: right and just to just to be clear for for our listeners these things are pretty tiny right i mean like the the adrenals are a very very small gland that has a very big function
2: correct correct they are tiny tiny glands usually hard to see in most cases unless they've got something wrong with them like a tumor or something like that usually even if you were to go in there and look at them these things are pretty tiny probably kind of like little Uh, Maybe like size of a little jelly bean or something like
1: that. Um, Right. Yeah, I just wanted to make it so, you know, people aren't picturing, you know, a golf ball on top of a kidney. This is, like you said, like a jelly bean on top of the kidney. So, or, you know, to the head side of the kidney in the case of a pet, because they don't stand upright that often. So, Uh, and now I know that when we talked about um, Addison's, you, you mentioned that it was nicknamed the great imitator. And when I was researching this episode, I saw that Cushing's has been nicknamed the uh, fat dog disease, which is, you know, (laughs) (laughs) seems a little unfair to our
0: heavier dogs, but
1: there you have it. So um, is it safe to assume that Cushing's results in what we would call a fat dog or a fat cat?
2: A lot of times it does, yeah. yeah. So they they tend to get a um, a couple things that gives them a... uh... Belly appearance, but mm-hmm. because it is a overproduction of, of steroids, prednisone. If you've ever taken prednisone yourself or known anybody that's taken prednisone, it does make you hungrier to eat more, um, and sometimes what could cause you to retain a little bit of water and things like that. It'll kind of make you a little bit bigger. Um, it's just right. one of the side effects if you have a dog on prednisone; they tend to get a little bit get a little bit of weight on it
0: yes yes so they can so, get, get
2: fat and the other thing it does is it, it increases you see the liver size increases a little bit which also kind of pushes everything down which makes them get like a little pot bellied a lot of time.
1: right right because it's pushing everything backwards to make room for itself so correct uh, um and now what other symptoms might um a family notice in their pet other than like oh you know so-and-so's got a little pot belly what else might they see yeah
2: um, so there's a lot of symptoms, and the, the tricky part is a lot of these symptoms are also symptoms for other diseases. So it's not always the easiest to say, oh, yeah, that's Cushing's disease, based on just symptoms alone. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of these diseases, um, they, it can imitate, not, unlike Addison's, it's not an imitator, but it, it tends to get kind of lost uh, for the symptoms. So I'll give you a bunch of them to, okay. to start off with. Um, Increase drinking and increased urination
0: are mm-hmm. probably
2: some of the biggest signs we think. Usually these guys are just drinking um, like crazy. They're thirsty all the time. If you ever had prednisone, um, you kind of feel that way. You just feel thirsty. You get kind of dry mouth. So you're, you're drinking a lot. Um, you're also, uh, you're urinating a lot because you can't uh, concentrate the urine. Um, mm-hmm. So then, Therefore, because you're drinking a lot, and urinating a lot, sometimes dogs you'll notice incontinence because usually this happens in older dogs and maybe they didn't have the strongest bladder to begin with or the bl- strongest um, sphincter to begin with. And they just can't hold it as much because their bladder just blowing up so much more, so people may notice incontinence. Mm-hmm. Um, just like prednisone, um, appetite goes up. Um talk about that pot-bellied appearance they sometimes get, and sometimes you get a little bit of muscle weakness too. Um, so it's kind of a kind of hard. That one's one of those kind of vague signs. A lot of times these are older dogs too. So it's, are they getting older, or are they just, you know, are they have muscle weakness from this disease? And then they can also have skin uh, involvement, so they can have some hair loss. Um, they can have uh, a lot of times with chronic cases, they can get thin skin, mm-hmm. um, so they can scratch easier. And that's one of the things in, um, the cats is really noticeable. I don't we'll talk about it in just a second, but, um, a lot of times with cushion disease, their hair doesn't grow back. Um, like if they shave it or they get shaved, or something like that. But once again, we talked about, there are also the thing called, which is not cushioning disease. Um, they can get, um, blackheads on their abdomen usually, they can get skin infections. And then there's a weird thing that is pretty consistent with mostly just cushion disease. It's a um, condition called calcinosis cutis. Um, and it's calcium deposits in the skin. Uh, so it has a really weird look to it, but it's something that can, that's usually pretty uh, suggestive of cushion disease. And then uh, just like prednisone, if you a dog on prednisone, they do pant a lot, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And then, um, And there's a rare, I think I've seen it maybe once or twice, Um, it's basically a a muscle stiffness. It's called a pseudomyotonia. Um, The the muscles get really stiff and they walk funny. and They kind of do a couple funny things um, with that. Um, And then, like we said, uh, cats tend to have a little bit different signs. They tend to have muscle wasting. They still get the pot-bellied appearance. They get that really thin hair coat, and their skin gets very thin, and they have a weird thing sometimes they get where it's uh, their ear tips kind of curl in, um, which is kind of an interesting thing with cats. Once again, we don't see it a lot, but it's, it's one of those things that can happen.
1: Okay, so, you know, the cat symptoms, they really do sound, I guess, uh, and this is kind of silly to say it this way, but s- similar but different because there are a few of those unique signs like you said like okay everybody gets the poor hair coat Well, not everybody but many of them get the poor hair coat they get the thin skin but the cats you know the earl the ears curling in a little bit um that would probably be a pretty telltale sign because short of having scarring in their ears that's not a thing that happens to a cat just because they got old
2: oh yeah usually and it's not something that's once again very common the disease itself is not common and then not all of them do that. And then the, right. the tricky thing with, with dogs and cats with this disease is they don't all show all the signs. Uh, there's actually, I don't have it in front of me there. I know there's a chart that basically says this percentage shows this sign, this percentage shows this sign, but not all of them show all the signs. So sometimes your dog just shows one or two of the signs. Um, right. Or maybe your dog just drinks a lot, but there's other diseases that can cause that as well. So it can, it can, can be kind of tricky just on based on clinical signs, but um, there are other things that we can do that to kind of suggest that
1: Exactly, exactly. And I mean, many of those signs that you mentioned, like drinking a lot. Well, yeah, that's a symptom of a lot of things, including getting older or some maybe some kidney disease or, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. And, and muscle weakness. Well, sure, I've had older dogs, they all get muscle weakness, you know what I mean? And so it's one of those things right. that you really kind of have to get a, a comprehensive look. So um, in addition into those outwardly observable symptoms, are there clues that you might see as a veterinarian in our routine blood work or anything like that that might lead you to think, oh, perhaps this pet has Cushing's disease?
2: Yeah, yeah. The most common one we see um, is an increase in alkaline phosphatase, which is a liver enzyme. We also call it ALP, Um, but basically that one, um, if it goes up, and I said it's one of the things that can indicate, hey, that's one of the possible causes of that value going up. So if they're having signs of Cushing's disease and that value is elevated, then it kind of says, oh, maybe we should do more specific testing. Um, The other big thing we see, because we talked about them drinking a lot and peeing a lot, um, a lot of these dogs tend to have low specific gravity to their urine. Mm. um, It basically means their urine is pretty water-like because they're drinking and they can't concentrate it. So it's not that dark gold color um, that usually you think of with urine. It's more of a clear, almost water-like substance um, that they're peeing out.
1: Right, right. And again, that's a thing that, you know, on its own, we see that with other disease processes as well. And so it's one of those things that we really do need that comprehensive picture with like, you know, it's really helpful when our clients come in and they say, oh, I've been seeing these five things going on and the more detail they can give and the more we can observe. And then we put it together with our blood work. That's kind of, you know, the best case scenario for getting a diagnosis of one of these kind of trickier conditions, I think.
2: Exactly. Exactly. It also helps sometimes in older dogs to do yearly blood work when they're here for their right. just to make sure that, you know, we can catch little things like that. And, you know, I see an increased outfoss and I say, hey, you know, outfoss is increased. It's, you know, it maybe nothing, but, you know, are you seeing any signs of uh, drinking a lot or peeing a lot? And they're like, oh yeah, you know what? You know, Fluffy has been drinking a lot more lately, and we've noticed all these signs. And I didn't think about it, I thought it was just getting old, but you know, then we kind of put that together. I said, oh, well, maybe, maybe that's something we can, you know, look into um, a couple different ways and test if we need to.
1: Right. Okay. So now that we have like a, a good suspicion of Cushing's disease, how do we go about actually diagnosing it?
2: That's a good question. So, uh, and that one's not every vet agrees the same way of doing it, so I would mm-hmm. them there's a lot of different ways of getting there, um, and that's because none of them are 100% like, oh, this is the only way. I think we um, talked about um, Addison's, and once we do that certain test, it's pretty pretty diagnostic for that, that ACTH stem test we do for right. Addison's. Um, coincidentally, um, that is one of the tests we can use for Cushing's as well, because um, in, in Addison's, we're actually stimulating to see if they can produce the steroids. Um, and they don't. And then we say, yeah, they, they have Addison. And in this case, we actually are giving the ACTH and basically trying to stimulate the hormone and see what kind of response their um, adrenal glands will put out. So we basically measure cortisol, we'll um, do the stimulation, and then we'll measure the cortisol again and see if they you know, really um, have an exaggerated response, um, which a lot of times with Cushing's they do. Um, there's also another test called a low-dose dexamethasone test. and This is mm-hmm. a... Um, this is an eight-hour test, so this actually takes a, you know, usually you have to drop them off for the day um, at the vet clinic just to get it done, and it's one of those things where we measure the cortisol at three different times, at zero hours, four hours, and eight hours. And we basically give them a little bit of dexamethasone, which is a steroid, and basically see if it suppresses the response, because normally what should happen is you give dexamethasone. It um, doesn't interfere with the cortisol level. You can't you know, it's a measure on the same level, but it should make that inhibition loop, Work So the pituitary gland, it should stimulate that not to produce steroids and make your, uh, when you measure that at four and eight hours, you'd have a suppressed response to that. You should be, um, your response to that should be like, oh, I've already got steroids. I don't need to make any more. So your cortisol levels should should go down from there. Um, And those are the two main tests we do. And sometimes some vets will do one test. And some vets will do another test, um, and it kind of depends. It's, it's even in the veterinary field, not everybody agrees what's the best test to do. Um, they say that um, just from reset, looking into it, the um, ACTH is more specific, it means it has less false positives. Uh, the low dose dexamethasone, dexamethasone test is a more sensitive test. So it may catch you, may say you're positive, but you may, you know, and sometimes they don't you know, they don't work or they don't agree. And sometimes one test will be negative and the other test will be positive. It's like, oh, okay, well, they have it. But not every test shows it 100% of the time. Um, and then there's another test I'll mention as well. And this test okay. is useful for ru- ruling out Cushing's, but not necessarily for diagnos- or not, um, diagnostic for it. So it's one of those tests that if you have some of those symptoms, you're like, okay, well, let's, let's do this test to see if we can rule it out. Like for some reason, maybe the dog uh, had dogs before that, you know, a, a blood test is no, they're not, they're really scared of the vet, and it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. We get most of these medications IV um, when we give them. So maybe the dog's just really anxious to the vet, and we go like, oh, yeah, that may not be the easiest test. So sometimes, um, or for other reasons too, we may run a um, what's called a urine cortisol creatinine ratio. And that's a test that has to be really done at home. Um, so basically, yeah, you have to get a urine sample and bring it in, but the urine sample needs to be taken at home.
1: Yes. For and it. and the reason for that, right, is that we, the reason we don't bring them in for that is because we don't want them stressed out. Correct. And and so yes. if they get stressed out, their cortisol levels go up and then it's just like, well, this test, you know, what was the point?
2: Right. Because it'll be positive because it measures exactly cortisol and it cre- cre- uh, creates a ratio of that with creatinine in the urine. The creatinine is a pretty specific number, and it should have a certain mm-hmm. rate, and if the cortisol level's really high, we say, oh, that's suggestive suggestive of Cushing's, but not diagnostic for because everything, like, just stress. If you bring them to the vet clinic and we get a urine sample, there's a good chance they could be stressed out just from us doing that. So the, the urine sample isn't as accurate unless it's you know, taken from home where they're not as stressed out in the normal environment. Um, once again, it can be used to, di- to, not to diagnose it, but to rule it out. So if it's negative, then you don't have Cushing's disease. If it's positive, it doesn't, you may have Cushing's disease, but you may not. So then we usually have to go to the other test.
1: Right. And I wanted to clarify something about that low-dose dex Mm -hmm. test, just because I actually had a friend, he's, they're not a local family, but they, Mm -hmm. you know, their vet said, okay, well, it's an eight-hour test. And and I'm pretty certain that my friend wasn't envisioning them working on their pet for literally eight consecutive hours. Right. And so, and really, yeah. so, but like what you said, you know, we do a blood draw and then we give an injection mm-hmm. of dexamethasone and then we wait four hours. We're not actually working on the pet for Correct. eight straight hours. I mean, that would be like the, the least time, you know, (laughs) like time, I don't know what I'm trying to, you know what I mean? Like it would be the the most expensive test ever run because you'd have to have one person doing it for eight hours. That's not the case. It is, it's a series of three blood draws that are spaced four hours apart from one another, So all told it's eight hours and the pet is, you know, able to sit and, and just chill out in the meantime. So just to be clear, because I did have a friend who they were like, no, it's an eight hour test. I'm not doing that. And I was like, no, 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 (laughs) it's not, it's not really. I mean, all told we're talking 10 minutes of actual working on your pet, but.
2: Right. The other, the other, the other time is just spent sitting around and basically we're just waiting for the body to respond or not respond
1: exactly exactly yeah and I and you do have to time it pretty accurately which is why we like to have the pet in the hospital for those eight hours because we can say we can have a timer that goes off and says oh it's time for fluffy's four-hour post check and oh it's time for fluffy's eight-hour check you know like it's it's convenient in that respect rather than worrying about you know the the family being stuck in traffic and fluffy's in the car and we missed our window that kind of thing but um Yeah. But just to be clear, it is an eight hour long stay at the hospital, but it's not actually eight hours of testing. I know that may sound silly to most people hearing this, but believe me, it has come up. That's why I brought (laughs) it up. (laughs) um, And then I actually, you kind of sparked another question. When you mentioned like the possibility of there being a tumor on the adrenal gland, can we look on ultrasound sometimes if we, you know, I know the adrenals are tiny, they're hard to find. Sometimes Mm -hmm. can we see a tumor on the adrenals, on some of our diagnostic imaging.
2: Yeah, so that actually is another, speaking of tests we do, so sometimes we're doing an ultrasound, and we'll, um, we can, we have normal measurements for the adrenal gland, and basically so we can compare those to how we are looking at that, so sometimes when we're doing a, an adult, abdominal ultrasound, and you're like, oh, okay, let's check, like, maybe you just have the couple liver enzymes elevate, you're just checking the liver, liver out, and we're. Uh, find mm-hmm. the adrenal glands. We say, oh yeah, the adrenal glands are bigger. The liver looks fine, but your adrenal, both your adrenal glands may be the same size, or maybe one of them's really big. It um, maybe has a tumor in there or something like that that we see. And sometimes we can see you know, what we think is a tumor. Sometimes we say, hey, you know, it's just a lot bigger than the other one. Um, as far as that goes, it's, adrenal tumors are kind of hard to diagnose exactly what kind of tumor they are just because mm-hmm. of the location. They're hard to can't really aspirate them as easily because um, they're connected to a huge blood supply, so we don't really want to um, do anything right there as far as
1: um, right. We don't, don't poke around there, that. yeah. <laughs> exactly, not
2: ultrasound. We're not going to do
1: that. Um, no, and you don't go in there with sharp objects unless, you, unless you're in surgery and you can see what you're doing. You don't do that ultrasound guided. You know, on adrenal glands, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, definitely not on adrenal glands, because you're right. Those are those renal arteries and all of that blood supply right there is massive and you don't want to poke a hole in those. So that's right. So now we have a pretty firm suspicion slash confidence that we've got a patient that has Cushing's disease. Um, how do we treat it? And is this one of the things, you know, we've, we've figured out Cushing's disease, our treatment has remained stable, or are we still evolving that treatment? Are we still improving it to where, you know, we've got better drugs than we used to kind of situation?
2: Yeah, I would say it's more the latter, that we do have better drugs than we used to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but too, um, the the main drug we use nowadays is called Vetteril, which is the name mm-hmm. brand of it. The um, generic name is Trilostane. And the um, this is a drug that basically inhibits an enzyme, and the enzyme causes the production of steroids. And the enzyme is a 3-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. Um, so it's one of those things that inhibits that, and it basically this is you know, that reduces makes the body produce kind of steroids, and this kind of inhibits that. So the in most cases we have a pituitary dependent pituitary dependent Cushings disease, and it basically is a, something we're going to suppress this production of steroids. Whereas the older drug, um, the one used to be called, um, or still called Mitotane, also known mm-hmm. as um, that's an older drug that we used to use. And that one tends to kind of have a, a it erodes the layers of the adrenal gland. So the problem with that is, the problem was that it can cause a lot more side effects. Um, I think 30%, 30 to 40% of dogs had side effects from that drug um, just off the, off the bat. And um, if you give too much of it, it can actually uh, completely um, demolish the adrenal gland, uh, and Whoops. basically you have a you have a dog yeah you have a dog that has Cushing's disease instead of Cushing's disease they now have addison's disease um, because of that now in some countries I think I you know great Britain maybe they used to do this they probably use Trilostane nowadays but um, the, the old thing was they used to you know, give them enough mitotane or lysergic to kill the adrenal gland um, and then basically manages the addison's patients because addison's tends to be a little bit in a lot of cases, easier to manage um, than Cushing's in the long run. So um, that used to be kind of the, the thought that you could destroy that, but it's the lights that you're in or might attain have, have a lot more side effects. Um, so,
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned like, oh, you can kind of go too far, either, you know, like the old school kind of intentionally or not. And you can cause Addison's. We, we did talk about iatrogenic Addison's disease in our mm-hmm. last discussion. Um, and, and, and treating Cushing's can lead to that. Are there other risks of treatment or are there side effects of the veteral that we should know about?
2: Yeah, there are. There are a lot of side effects. This is where it becomes um, kind of one of the things we have to ma- manage whether the uh, the experience for that patient is worth the side effects. So is, is the disease itself worse than the side effects or not? So mm-hmm. I'm just going to um, just read directly from the company's website, Decra, who now um, currently makes vetoril. um and they basically says just their side effects tend to be um, anorexia, which is not eating, lethargy, depression, vomiting, diarrhea, Elevated liver enzymes, elevated potassium with arouse decreased sodium, which is that whole sodium-potassium ratio we talked about with Addison's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, elevated BUN, which is a kidney value. Uh, once again, this is a decreased sodium-potassium ratio. Hypoadrenal corticisms, Addison's disease. Uh, weakness, elevated creatinine, which is another kidney enzyme. Shaking, renal and renal insufficiency. And then it says, in some cases, death has been recorded as an outcome of these adverse events. So um, that's one of the things, it's not just a benign thing like, oh, yeah, let's just give this, we'll be fine. We have to, when we do this, we have to um, monitor it a lot as well when we're, we're doing that, make sure we have everything right in that, um, and then get to make sure that everything's kind of go along with that to make sure the patient's doing well with everything as well.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, there there might be times where we kind of have to dial back our, our treatment a little bit or, you know, potentially it's like, okay, we're doing well at this low dose. We could be doing better. We might try to go up, but we really want to watch for these signs. so this is mm-hmm. one of those situations where we want a client who's well-informed, like, oh, if these things start happening, we need to hear from you.
2: Right. Exactly. Right.
1: Okay. So, yeah, you just mentioned it. You know, it can be kind of tricky to walk that little tightrope of treatment. And we do well, want to... Um, you know, fairly closely monitor them. Um, but then uh, let's say we have a patient who's doing pretty well on their veteral, What's our prognosis look like?
2: Uh, usually, you know, in the most cases, it's um, for controlled of Cushing's disease. It's, it's pretty good if they're doing, they're not, you know, responding negatively. We were able to get everything under control. We've monitored their, um, their cortisol levels. Um, we do re- usually repeated ACTH stem tests to kind of monitor everything is going. Um, mm-hmm. with that and those will be usually your doctor will tell you when you need to get those done and other blood monitoring tests to kind of make sure everything's going well but if yeah, we're doing pretty good well on that we have under control um, we can kind of control the symptoms of cushion disease we can't cure the cushion disease though so we can right. uh, more or less control the symptoms uh, we're not going to cure the disease
1: yeah and that's a thing that you know that's you know for one thing if it's pituitary we're not going to do brain surgery in most cases And, you know, we can't live without a pituitary gland, so we're definitely not going to just take that out. In the same way, most general practice vets also don't do adrenalectomies because that is a very tricky surgery, and it's not something you just go in there and, like, zip, 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 and you're out. So, you know, I mean, there's
2: something that, yeah, you're going to go to a board-certified surgeon in order to do that particular surgery.
1: Um, Right, and when you can control your symptoms – effectively, you don't need to cure it, so to speak. Right. In other, you know, I mean, like if you can control it without without having to, you know, actually cure it the way you would cure an infection, then it, then it's less of a big deal.
2: Right. And then it's, sometimes it's, with Cushing's disease, you don't treat it. You know they have it and you monitor the symptoms and the signs and you basically it's a decision of the owner and the vet name. Veterinarian make and say, hey, you know, should we treat this or not? And in some cases, the answer is, listen, we don't need to treat it at this time because the symptoms aren't severe enough to cause problems. We're not having any other issues. Um, and then sometimes that can change with time too. Sometimes you may start saying, hey, we're not treating it, and the symptoms get worse, and clinical signs mm-hmm. get worse, and you're like, oh yeah, we do, we do need to go ahead and treat this now. Um, right. So it, it can be variable and can kind of a, a sometimes. Tough to decide hey should we treat this or not now sometimes it's obvious you definitely should but sometimes it is a harder thing to to get hold of with whether you should treat it or not um, in some cases treating is not the best option for the dog because either the medication causes side effects that aren't desirable um, and then it's also very expensive to monitor and treat the disease so I always tell people that's, that's another um, thing we always have to worry about too
1: Right, right. You always want your treatment to help your patient, not make it worse, and so exactly. that's that's always going to be a consideration. Okay, so we discussed in our last chat about how uh, JFK had Addison's disease, and I did a fair amount of research looking for. Um, famous people either still with us or from history who had Cushing's disease and I did not have a ton of luck finding any and I wonder if you found any or if we should just discuss the ones that I found.
2: Uh, we can discuss the ones you found. I don't know if any are on top of my head. I do know that a lot of uh, uh, mountain climbers uh, can get Cushing's or Addison's disease um, like people that climb Everest and things like that because one of the treatments mm-hmm. for altitude sickness is dexamethasone. Oh, so sometimes, sometimes mountain climbers um, feel over enthusiastic and they don't want to, you know, suffer from mountain sickness. So they'll start giving themselves, you know, injections of dexamethasone or taking a huge amount of oral dexamethasone and they'll, they can cause themselves to get cushioning disease because they don't really, they're usually not doing it under doctor doctor's supervision. They're usually just doing right. their own. And then they, sometimes they do that and they stop giving it and they, you know, go from maybe cushionoid, maybe and maybe there's some side effects and they abruptly stop it and they'll. Uh, the body doesn't produce their own thing, and they'll get Addison's disease. And unfortunately, sometimes these things happen up on when they're doing the mountain climbing. So that's kind of one of those interesting things that they can do just from taking too much. And it used to be more of a problem in veterinary medicine. It can still be a problem, but um, we used to give a lot of um, steroids for allergies. I mean, it used to right. be our main stage before we had better medications like Apoquil and Cytopoam, mm-hmm. which We talked about, I think, in my allergy lecture. Or yes, yes, My allergy um, podcast that we basically... Um, can, because of the better treatments nowadays, we don't see as much of it from that. But if, yeah, if you give steroids all the time and every day they get steroids, you can make um, iatrogenic Cushing's um, just from getting so much steroids every day because it's basically the same same kind of thing uh, with disease right. and people when you're taking steroids.
1: See, and that's the value of refining our treatments for things because mm-hmm. now we're not causing as much Cushing's disease by trying to control allergies or pain you know i mean like you think well prednisone it's an anti-inflammatory it's good for a lot of things but it's also Correct. bad for a lot of things right and so too,
2: too you much, know, much of anything it's not good
1: exactly so. exactly and it's just the same way we've you know refined our treatment for cushing's disease um with we don't use the mitotain anymore we use vetero now and and it's the same thing you know we we we're constantly evolving, trying to get better at how we treat things so that we're not affecting all these other systems like as, as collateral damage, basically. Um, okay. So what I found was that, uh, back to famous people, I mean, Henry the eighth is theorized to have had it but this is, you know, we can't go back. He died in I think it was fifteen forty seven or fifteen forty four, somewhere around there. Um, yeah, fifteen forty seven. He died almost five hundred years ago. We can't right. go back and say, "Can I have a blood sample, please, Your Highness?" Right. And so, so this is this is based largely on descriptions of his behavior and the fact that he was fat in his portraits. Right. You know, I mean, and but like, there's also he, he was a king. He ate better than everyone else in his entire kingdom. So, and he was kind of known to be a glutton. So, right. you know, he could have put on all that weight just by virtue of of his circumstances. And he was a tyrant. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> we can't say, oh, well, it was Cushing's. So, I mean, right. that one. <laughs> there's. There's a lot of circumstance that says, "Eh, probably not. Um, The next one I saw was that there are rumors of Elvis Presley having had Cushing's disease. And I mean, so he had the pot belly. It's entirely possible. Mm -hmm. But um, Elvis Presley actually did, like his doctor has given many interviews talking about the fact that Elvis actually had megacolon. And numerous other conditions. And so there is, I have never seen anything confirmed about whether or not he might have had Cushing's. But megacolon right. is a whole nightmare unto itself. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's what it sounds like. Your colon is, is gigantic. And so you might have a pot belly from your megacolon, you might have a pot belly from the drugs that you're taking to ease the pain from your megacolon. You know, Correct. and so it's like, right. So
2: just, just like in dogs, a lot of things look similar, but not necessarily exactly. really are the same thing. It's not necessarily there's no like, you know, this, oh, this is definitely Cushing's disease because of this. You're like, oh, it could be, it could not, which is why even with dogs, we can't just look at them and say, yeah, it's probably, you know, sometimes we can. We're like, yeah, it's probably Cushing's. And then we, do, we still have to do the test, though, to diagnose it.
1: Exactly. Um, and yes, unfortunately, we can't go back and test Elvis either. So right. that's not an option. Um, and, and you know, I mean, in the same circumstance, when I was a toddler, I had a gigantic pot belly and I ate like a little piggy, you know, but like, here we are, I don't have Cushing's disease. So that one is, again, not so reliable. Right. And then right. so the, the final one I heard, I saw uh, is that Ashley Judd, who is thankfully still with us, she is said to have to have or have had exogenous cushing's syndrome which mm-hmm. is different but it's possibly the closest thing that that i can find to you know a name a recognizable name to right. um to cushing's disease and so and
2: I, I, do you, and I believe i'm not a human doctor but i do believe that <laughs> um that what they call exogenous cushing syndrome is the what we call iatrogenic cushing syndrome so i think it's right. very similar to She's taking too much steroids, and I think what is she? Do you remember what she was taking steroids for? But she was probably taking steroids for something, maybe Immunity um, yes. diseases. Um, um, sometimes we have some, you know, some dogs and cats right. that have a, you know autoimmune diseases, and we have to put them on steroids for a long time, and that can uh, that can cause the iatrogenic ones. Studies,
1: right so. right and i think i i recall in my readings i did not write it down in my notes but i'm pretty sure yes she was on you know let's call it pred or some other you know pred analog and mm-hmm. for for a long time and this happened to her again this is also not a thing that she spoke out about you know right. and and so or if she did they were you know it was people said oh her appearance has changed and she was like yeah mm-hmm. i've got cushings thanks guys <laughs> You know, it yeah. wasn't, it was, she didn't go on a, like a publicity tour for it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, and that's what I found. Unfortunately, we don't have that nice, you know, standard bearer like JFK, Addison's disease. This is, right. you know, I mean, I found all kinds of websites where people who have Cushing's wish they had, um, for lack of a better word, a celebrity spokesperson the same okay. way. You know, celebrities who've had breast cancer or colon cancer, they will come out and they talk about their experience because it sort of de- stigmatizes it. A lot of people wish there was somebody with Cushing's who was a high profile public, public figure who could say, this is what I have and this is what I live with. And, right. and unfortunately, you know, until we have a celebrity dog, we also don't have that in the in the veterinary world.
2: That's true. That's
1: true. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> yes. So. Okay. And now is there anything else that you feel that we have left out in our chat about Cushing's disease that is important for our listeners to know?
2: Um, there is one thing about diabetes and um, Cushing's disease. So because um, Cushing's is a overproduction of steroids, um, steroids tend to kind of counteract insulin. So in general, they tend to be two molecules that don't like each other and they tend to, you know, Kind of not necessarily fighting in, amongst the body, but they it'll tend kind to of get along. So about in a, in dogs that have Cushion's disease, about ten percent will also have um diabetes, develop diabetes along with it. So okay. um that's usually usually the untreated ones. Uh, usually when they're treated, it tends to help with that. Um, then about in cats that get it though, it tend to have about um eighty percent I think of cats do develop diabetes with when they have cushions disease. But once again, a lot of, there are a lot of cats out there with diabetes that don't have Cushing's disease. So diabetes by itself is far more likely in cats than diabetes and Cushing's disease. But when they have Cushing's disease, it's something that um, they will oftentimes get diabetes as well with cats, um, dogs. It can happen, but it doesn't happen as frequently. It's a very small percentage.
1: Right, right. And again, just to re- reiterate, it's pretty rare to see a cat with Cushing's disease. It is Com- yes. compared to the dog population. So yes, maybe 80%. That's, that's a good chunk of cats that are going to also develop diabetes, but it's not a large chunk of the populations that, that is going to get Cushing's in the first place.
2: Correct. Correct.
1: So, you know, it, but it is definitely, you know, for cat families to, to bear in mind, you know, like if your cat has Cushing's, there's a, there's a pretty good likelihood that they will get d- diabetes somewhere down the line.
2: Yeah. I, I, I think that's the best, yeah, the most important message to get
1: out of that. Exactly. Right, right. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Loveless. I appreciate your time, as always.
2: Thank you, Gretchen.
0: Again, this podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and it is specifically intended for clients of the Animal Hospital of North Asheville. If today's episode has contradicted information given to you by your veterinarian, please adhere to your practice's advice and policies. This brings us to the end of the episode. If you aren't already, we'd love it if you'd stay connected with us on social media. Thank you for listening, and until next time, may your life be full of puppy love and kitten kisses.